0: Well, if you're at home uh, watching online or you're here, uh, turn to Ephesians 2. If you haven't already done so, Ephesians 2, as we continue our study in this great book, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. If you noticed in the scripture reading, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is not the most positive three verses you're going to read in the Bible. It's pretty negative. Basically, what Paul is doing in these three verses is he is describing in detail what is wrong with the world. The main problem for, for humanity is the problem that he describes in Ephesians 2. And in fact, it's the problem, for, even for those of us who know Christ as our Savior, it was our greatest problem at one time before we put our faith and confidence in Jesus Christ. And I think what Paul is doing here after all of these wonderful spiritual blessings he outlines in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 and the prayer that we've looked at the last two weeks where we're praying that the realities of Ephesians 1, these amazing spiritual blessings would be understood and lived out in our lives. What Paul is sort of doing here is giving us the backstory. Yes, Ephesians 1 is great. This is true of you. You were chosen you were predestined to good works. You were, you were adopted into God's family. You were redeemed. You were, you were taken out of the marketplace of sin and you were now free from the guilt and power of sin. You, you've received an inheritance uh, by the Holy Spirit that guarantees that in the future you will be with God forever. All of these are wonderful blessings, but I think what Paul is trying to do here in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is help us understand you will see the glories of Ephesians 1 When you see where we all have come from, where we all once were, where we all, before we came to Christ, before God opened up our hearts and mind, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, details for us who we were, what we were like, so that we can understand more deeply the new identity that we've been graciously given in Jesus Christ. Maybe you could call this the power of negative thinking, all right? So this morning, we need to do two things. Number one, I want us to see clearly who we were and what we were like before we came to Christ. I want us to see it. I kind of want you to feel it. I want you to be reminded this is who we all were. This is who everyone in the world is like at birth. And then I want to draw out three gospel responses to this bad news, but true news of who we once were. So let's dive in to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And what I want us to to see in this first section, who we once were or who we were before God brought us to himself. there's, There's two features of Paul's description that sort of describe the nature of who we were. And then he's going to describe three entities that that exercise control and power over our lives before we came to Christ. Let's look at the two pieces of the nature. Verse 1, we see the first of these two pieces of who we were, the nature of who we were, when he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul starts off by saying that every human being and who we were before we came to Christ, we were dead. We had no spiritual life whatsoever. We were separated from the life of God. And it wasn't just that we needed a little bit of help to kind of get moving toward God. We were spiritually dead. No access to God, no power to know him, no desire, Paul says, to, to know him and no, no understanding of who he was. Romans 3. We were dead. We were powerless. We were helpless and hopeless. And there was no way for us in that condition to get out of This spiritually dead situation and in the trespasses and sins, trespasses and sins, very similar word. It's talking about the fact that we did not follow God. We rebelled against him. We were violating his law. We were by nature spiritually dead. We couldn't help but live in our trespasses and sins. I think the reason Paul puts both of these words together is to describe the spiritually dead place that we were in. And why this is so important for us to understand this, it, I think it's easy for us to forget this is who we once were. It's easy to sort of think, well, I needed a little help from God. A little help, you were dead. I don't, uh, I know a lot of you have pets and you love them. And you have animals in your house. That's your choice. Most of the animals who lived in my house as a small boy up through adulthood died terrible deaths. It was not a great moment, right? And uh, when my kids were young, we babysat a guinea pig, okay, from our next-door neighbors. And uh, I didn't want to do this, but my wife thought we should love our neighbors. She thought that was a good idea for us to do, so we kept this guinea pig. And after the first 24 hours, this guinea pig began to list and then begin to list further and further and further. And I realized we've killed the guinea pig somehow. How are we going to explain this to the neighbors? Now it was interesting, my children reacted very differently. My daughter internalized the, 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 the dying guinea pig and somehow we've done something wrong. So she was feeling very guilty. My son on the other hand, uh, was, was kept yelling at the guinea pig. This went on for hours. He just said, get up, get up. And he thought, I think if he could raise his voice a little louder, the guinea pig would somehow come to life, but that guinea pig died, and we were sued. no, we did we weren't sued. We were dead, no life, helpless, hopeless, no desire for God, no understanding of God, spiritually dead. Under the power of our sins and trespasses, this was the nature of who we were before we trusted Christ. Now, at the end of of, of verse 3, we see a second piece of the nature of who we were before we came to Christ. When Paul says, the last phrase of verse 3 says, "...and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." What this verse is saying is, because we were trapped by our sin, because we were spiritually dead with no power to seek God on our own, the condition of every human being, like the rest of mankind, but for us who know Christ, we were, by nature, who we were, were people, children of wrath. and In other words, God's righteous and appropriate opposition to all sin And all trespasses is to pour out his righteous anger on us. That's the condition we were in. The God of the universe, the one being who has power over our lives... Not just our physical life, but our eternal destiny was righteously and appropriately opposed to us in his anger. And that was our condition because we were children of wrath. Simply being born into the world meant that we were under the righteous anger of the only being in the world that we should fear. And of course he says everybody was in that boat. That's where we once were. Now, that's bad enough, but, but then in, in, in verses 2 and 3, Paul describes three different entities that were controlling our lives. Okay, So go back up to verse 2. Uh, well, We'll go to verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then he, Paul goes on, in which you once walked following the course of this world. In other words, every human being is born spiritually dead under the wrath of God, but we're under the power of the world. We all followed the power of the world. What is the world? The world is the collection of spiritual ideas, spiritual beliefs, ideas about how to make life work without God that are constantly trying to mold us and direct us. And before we trusted Christ, we were under the de facto power of this world system. Now, I don't have time to go through all the different ways the world tries to uh, mold us and tries to shape us I and, and the ways in which we were controlled by this world system before we trusted Christ. But there's all kinds of things. I mean, you know, this, this is not good for me, right? At my age, right? But the world kind of says, you need to look good externally. Physical beauty is everything. That doesn't make me feel good when I look in the mirror. Lots of commercials, okay? During sports events about dealing with hair loss, it hasn't worked yet. I haven't tried it, but... That's, 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 that's part of the world system is, is, is making physical beauty everything, and that is crushing to people. That can control people. I don't know, there's another aspect of the world system that says money is everything. Things are everything. We, we joke about this. A lot of people deal with stress by going to buy something, and it kind of works for 17 minutes. then you need something else. The world has all kinds of ways to tell you. You know, it's all about success. It's all about your career. If you just had this, if you could just do this, then life would work. The world attempts to control us. And when we were without Christ, before we came to Christ, this world, this system of ideas controlled us. It exercised a power over us. Well, that's the first entity that we were under the power of. But secondly, there's another power which says we're we following the course of this world. But then he goes on to say following the prince of the power of the air. So before we came to Christ, we were under the de facto power of the evil one. The prince of the air is a, is a phrase that's talking about Satan and his fallen angels called demons. Now, you know, in the West, Western world, we don't like to talk about these spiritual forces, but the Bible presents them as real, as powerful. And we're told in 1 John 4 that Satan is is in control of the world system of ideas, but he himself exercises personal involvement in trying to control every human being, particularly those of us who have not come to Christ yet. We were under the dominion and power of Satan himself. Paul goes on to say, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I think what Paul is trying to say is that the spirit, the spiritual power of the world and the spiritual power of Satan himself was at work in us. The sons of disobedience, again, we were dead in our trespasses. We were under the wrath of God. The power of the world and the power of Satan was controlling and dictating to us how we lived, what we thought about, how we acted. We were not free people before we came to Christ. And then lastly, verse 3, the third spiritual entity that exercised power over us. He goes on to say in verse 3, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The third entity that exercised power over us before we came to Christ is something called the flesh. Now, the flesh is not your physical body. What the flesh is, is the internal spiritual power of a series of ideas, thoughts, um, a series of thoughts, ideas, um, even emotions and responses that we learned before we came to Christ that tried to make life work without God. And this, these series of things that we think about, it's, it's probably a little bit unique. Everybody probably has a unique version of your flesh. It operates in us as a spiritual power. But before we came to Christ, this flesh dominated us. This flesh controlled us. Paul says we once lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of the, of the body. I think flesh could be another word there, the flesh and the mind. We were under the domination of these ideas and thoughts and beliefs that we learned before we came to Christ, how to make life work without God. And those series of ideas and thoughts and desires controlled us. I've said this before, I think, I think my flesh, my personal picture of the flesh um, is, is I really, if I'm not looking to Christ, I actually believe if I win and if I succeed, I'm a good person. Losing was the 11th commandment in my home, okay? I can still remember my granddad from Oklahoma came up. I was living in Detroit, Michigan. I was playing Little League Baseball. I, I'm not even sure I had come to Christ at that point. I was under the power of sin. I was dead in the trespasses and sins. I was, I was uh, controlled by the world. I was controlled by the evil one who was attempting to dominate and control my life. And I was captive to my own flesh. And my flesh, as a little seven-year-old kid before I came to Christ, was always telling me, if you win, you're a good person, Tracy. If you lose, you're worthless. I was playing Little League Baseball. My granddad had come to watch the game. In fact, I got up to bat. It was T-ball, okay? My granddad yelled out to me, Hey, Tracy, if you hit a home run, I'll give you $10. And kids, back then, $10 was a lot of money, okay? A lot of money. And I mean, I got up there and and I hit the ball as hard as I could and I lifted out into center field and the guy caught it. I never hit a home run. Our team lost at the end of the game. Having lost, which means I'm a worthless person. My flesh is telling me I am throwing my glove down, stomping on my glove, making a huge scene in front of my grandparents, my family, and the rest of the f- fans who were watching and probably thinking, well, that's a problem, child. So <laughs> sorry for those parents. This is who we once were. Dead in our trespasses and sins, completely helpless and hopeless, unable to pursue God or know God. The wrath of God is on us because we are called children of wrath because our sins deserve the righteous opposition of a holy God. We are trapped by the world system of ideas, Carried along wherever it takes us. Satan is in control of that world system, so he's involved in that, under that dominion, and now our own flesh internally, we have a situation where we have a spiritual power that operates within us that's trying to get us to make life work without God. This... Is the major problem with every single human being in the world, but this is the problem that we once faced before we came to Christ. It's not a pretty picture, but it's the truth. I would suggest to you that, you know, if, if you're new to, 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 to Christianity, maybe you're, you're seeking, maybe you're, you're home, you know, thinking about considering Christianity. I think these three verses have a lot of explanatory power of why the world the way it is the way it is today. You got to figure out why, why is the world so messed up? A lot of people think it's just random evil. A lot of people think, well, if we had more education, if we had uh, more money, if we could, we, we could provide, if our political situation could get solved, these things would be solved. The Bible says, uh-uh. Every single human being is that when they're born. Every single human being is born into this situation. And that is why when you have many, many people all over the world, billions of people who are trapped in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and those trapped people and those people who are dead are beginning to form new organizations like a marriage, like a family like a, a political party or a uh, an educational institution or, or some community group or some business. And you can understand when you get a bunch of people in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 going together, you're going to have problems. I would suggest that the Christian understanding of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 explains why the world is as fouled up as it is because each one of us is fouled up like this upon birth. I know this isn't the most exciting three verses to think about, but I think it is critical that we do think about this. I think it is critical for those of us who know Christ as our Savior. It is true that Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 doesn't describe us anymore. Yes, we live in Ephesians 1. You're chosen. You've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. You've you've been freed from the marketplace of sin. You're no longer under the de facto power of sin or the de facto power of the world or the de facto power of your flesh. You're a new person. The spirit of God lives inside you. The resurrection power of Christ lives inside you to change you. You are no longer under the power of the world flesh and the evil one. You are no longer dead in sin. You're alive to God. You're no longer under the wrath of God because Jesus took that wrath upon himself at the cross so that you would never face the wrath of God Romans 8 1 there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus but I would dare say that because we forget who we once were we don't see the beauty of who we are now and that's why contemplating a fairly dark set of three verses Is absolutely crucial. So, what I'd like to do in the second part of uh, the sermon this morning is I want to provide for you three gospel responses to the truths of Ephesians 2. Three responses, three gospel responses that are appropriate. It's not the only responses, but I'm going to focus on three responses. Number one, gospel worship. Here's what I would say. If you truly understand that this is who you once were, dead, a child of wrath, under the power of the world, Satan, and your own flesh, if you believe that that is who you once were and now you understand that by grace through nothing that you did, through nothing that you accomplished, through no uh, exercise of your own will and power, God has taken you out of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 and placed you into Ephesians 1 where you're this new person with a new identity having power over sin, power over the world, power over Satan, not under God's wrath, spiritually alive. This should cause you to worship in a much more dramatic ways than when you probably do if we understood where we have come from, if we understand that we were in Ephesians 2, but now by God's grace, we live in Ephesians 1, we ought to be worshiping God and praising God and be on our knees in gospel worship and, and humility, recognizing that this God has done the most amazing thing for us in the most critical problem we've ever faced. Sometimes I wonder, I mean, I, I went to seminary Sometimes I feel like, you know, we sing Amazing Grace and we're like, yeah, Amazing Grace, yeah. I've sung that song. It is Amazing Grace. You once were in Ephesians 2, now you're in Ephesians 1. And the reality is you're never going to see the beauty of Ephesians 1, and I would say Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, which we'll get to next week. You're never going to fully appreciate the glory of God's grace until you understand the darkness of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 and that you were in it. Just a question. How many of you have ever been to a star party where you go and look at the stars? Case. Okay, so nobody cares about astronomy. Okay, that's fine. About 10 years ago, I had a, a group of friends who were sort of, uh, you know, amateur astronomers. They all had telescopes of all sizes and they were frequently going out and had what they called a star party. And I at first thought, this is kind of silly. You know, what are you going to go look at a telescope all night? And of course, they would stay up all night and sleep all day. It sounds like a weird weekend, right? But one time I decided I'd go. And what I discovered is these astronomers, these little, uh, you know, hobbyist, you know, astronomers, amateur astronomers, they have researched thoroughly where to go ...to find the darkest piece of night sky that they can find. So I ended up going to the Tuckahoe State Park in Maryland. I think it's near the eastern shore of Maryland. And apparently it's one of the darker places in D.C., in the D.C. area. When I drove there, I had all of these instructions because I came late. I, I, when I got within a mile of where they were, I had to turn off my headlights because they would not allow any light anywhere near what they were looking at. So I had to dim my lights. I'm worried I'm going to drive off the road. When I get there, you can't use flashlights. You've got to cover them with this red film because they don't want any light to, uh, to affect their ability to see the stars and all of the other uh, uh, entities that they're looking at. And I have to say, when I was skeptical of their efforts. When I got there and spent some time with them in this very dark corner of Maryland, you could see the stars in ways that I've never seen before in my life. And then, of course, they had their telescopes and you could see things I've never seen before. You could see these amazing celestial objects all over the sky, And the reason we could see these celestial objects with such clarity and and, and to see more of them than you normally would if you live in a bigger city where there's lots of light that distort that vision. The only way to see that is to see those celestial objects on the background of a very dark sky. And you will never understand Ephesians 1. You will never understand Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 unless, fully unless you see the dark night of Ephesians 2, which is who you once were. And my challenge to each of us this week, I think it would be a good discipline is to read Ephesians two one through three acknowledge this is who you once were, this was truly who you were by nature and by action, and then read Ephesians one and ephesians two four through six, and recognize that You were in a helpless and hopeless situation, trapped by the world, the flesh, the devil, under the wrath of God. And God, through no effort of yours, rescued you out of that. And now Ephesians 1 is your new identity. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 is your new identity. And when you see the darkness of Ephesians 2 and the beauty of Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, that ought to translate into significant and massive worship for the grace that you have been given by God himself. That's gospel worship. The second way to apply this is gospel perspective. Again, we see we're dead under the wrath of God, trapped by the world flesh devil. We've now been taken out of that and we're in a new place. When we see Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, when we understand that this is the greatest problem we have ever had to deal with, when we understand that Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 was where we were living, it was who we were, what we were like, and we were helpless and hopeless, and we see that God, by his grace, rescued us out of this, put us into a new identity, put us into a new place, where we're now alive to God, free from the de facto power of these three entities, not under the wrath of God anymore. It should give us gospel perspective for dealing with the problems we are dealing with today. You think about it. God in his mercy and grace rescued you from the greatest problem and the one problem that if you didn't get that fixed, Ephesians 2, could not only affect your life today, but forever. Jesus Christ rescues you from that position, rescues you from the greatest problem you, you, you will ever have, giving you this new identity, this new life. And and that is the, the gospel perspective is to keep that in mind even as you deal with your present sufferings. I, I feel embarrassed. Okay, I'll I'm, I'm just be honest. Right? You'll probably be embarrassed too, right? I can't believe how often I get into a present trial. I don't like something. Something bad is happening and it is grievous. It's real. It's it's not an imagined trial. It's a real trial. But in the midst of that trial, if God doesn't get me out of this trial, you know, in the time limit, I've told God he needed to do this. If he doesn't answer my prayers exactly the way I want him to be answered, I start to wonder, I wonder if God really cares about me. I wonder if God really loves me anymore. I start to question him. I start to get frustrated with him, forgetting that the big problem he's already rescued me from. And whatever trial you have now, and I'm not trying to underestimate, some of you are going through grievous trials But whatever trial you're dealing with now, it is temporary. It will not go on forever, but the life you have in Jesus will go on forever. And if God rescued you from the greatest problem you could ever face, and he hasn't quite rescued you from all of the specific trials you have, you can still know that God loves you if you keep in mind, I was in Ephesians 2, now I'm in Ephesians 1. Try to think of an illustration all week just to help you understand. But let's say you had a neighbor, a friend of yours, and one night your house catches on fire and your whole family's in jeopardy, and you don't even see the danger of the fire. And your neighbor comes in and rescues you, saves you and every single member of your family. And if he, if that neighbor hadn't come in, you all probably would have perished but he saved your life. And in the process of that, he had smoke inhalation. He had burns over his body. He was hospitalized after he rescued you. And then months later, you, you, you've got this, this this party that you want to have in your neighborhood and you want your neighbor to be part of it. And he said he was going to come and you made these elaborate preparations. And at the last minute, that neighbor calls and cancels. Now you'd be frustrated with him. But are you really going to Really be that angry with him, given the fact that you're alive because of him? I feel like sometimes we have these temporary trials. They may be very difficult, but they're temporary. But we forget the main miracle that God has already done for us, bringing us from Ephesians 2 to Ephesians 1. And since we forget the great miracle that he's already done in our lives... We charge God with indifference or worse when He doesn't rescue us out of these temporary problems. As difficult as they are, none of them are as big or as profound or as dangerous and destructive as the problem He's already rescued us from. Gospel perspective. Lastly, gospel engagement. if we really believe that Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is true of every human being and was true of us and God rescued us by grace. How can we not faithfully fulfill our gospel responsibilities to our friends, family members, neighbors, coworkers, classmates in trying to help them understand the rescue that could be theirs in Jesus? after we have been graciously rescued from this greatest problem of mankind, we now have been rescued. We're not dead. We're not, we're not trapped by the sin, the flesh, the devil. We're, we're not under the wrath of God. Having been rescued by God, how can we not fulfill our gospel responsibilities to those around us and share this message with them? So I'm going to push you in two directions. Paul is pretty clear that while God is the only one who can save us from Ephesians 2, he has ordained the means of bringing people out of Ephesians 2 and into Ephesians 1. He's ordained us believers and tasked us with being to faithfully represent Christ in words and actions to the world. Paul says in Romans 10 How shall they hear without a preacher? So I'm going to push you in just two directions. Number one is when you look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you see the impossibility of getting out of this except by the grace of God and the power of God. My encouragement to each of us is I want you to consider praying daily for at least five people in your life who don't know the Lord, who are in Ephesians 2. They are trapped like you were. Five. Now, some of you could pray for more than five, but I'm putting that to five. Five friends, five family members, a combination, co-workers, classmates. And I want to challenge you to pray that God would be the one who will rescue these individuals that you care about, who are trapped like you were trapped, but to pray for them and faithfully pray for them and pray that God would work because God's the only one who can get them out of this mess. Sometimes I think about us, it, 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 I feel like, like some of us are like, um, you know, we, we, we're rescued in this amazing way. And then we kind of look at our friends and neighbors and I say, well, you know, well, good luck. Where's the prayer? And of course, I, I know some of you will say, well, but we need to tell them something. I'm telling you, you need to pray first preacher appreciate what Ian e. Bound says. He wrote a lot about prayer. He says, before you start talking to people about God, maybe you, gotta, you need to talk to God about people. You got to pray and ask God to do what only he can do. He's the only one who has the power to rescue someone out of Ephesians 2. So we pray. This afternoon, if you want, I've got eight biblical prayer requests. on the website under the bulletin for today, eight different biblical ways to pray for your friends, neighbors, coworkers, family members who don't know Christ. I encourage you to download that, stick it up on your refrigerator and pray every single day for your friends, neighbors, and coworkers. And guess what? I don't know how many people this would be, but, but I, think, I think an elementary ch- school ch- child who knows Christ, middle school, high school, all the way up to senior citizens, if we all were praying for five people every day, we'd be praying for 2,000 people. 2,000 people would be asking God to do what only God can do. We would be evidencing that we understand the truth of Ephesians 2. This is a helpless and hopeless situation. People don't just need a nudge toward Christ. They need to be completely rescued because in and of themselves, they can't find their way out. And you couldn't find your way out. And God rescued you. So we need to be praying that God would do this. And I'm pretty confident if you pray faithfully persistently for the five people maybe that God lays on your heart I think God will begin to work God will begin to do things that's first sort of gospel engagement the second thing I want to encourage you to do is to have conversations with the people that you're praying for Now I'm not asking you to go preach the gospel I'm not asking you to go home this afternoon knock on your neighbor's door put on a mask and preach the gospel in the front yard if you want to do that great if that doesn't go over too well don't call me They might call the police. But when you begin to pray for people, which is an expression of loving your neighbor, you also need to engage with them in normal human conversations. And in those normal human conversations, as you find out about their life, as you ask how they're doing, you need, as you're praying for opportunities to share Christ, God will give you opportunities to put God on the agenda of those conversations in a normal human way. I'll give you two of what I do all the time. Um, it, it may be a little easier for me or maybe harder. I, I, when I have to tell my neighbor I'm a pastor, I, I see the, the, the joy come out of their face. Oh, a pastor, Ugh, one of those religious types, <laughs> you know. So to overcome that, I have to, I have to work hard. I pray and then I talk. I, I, I just talk in a normal human way. How was your weekend? That's a normal question. Then they ask me, how was your weekend? Sometimes I say something about church, something I learned in a sermon, right? Normal human being conversations. I tell you, this election will give you lots of opportunities if you think about it, right? I mean, a lot of my neighbors are freaked out about the election. And so they ask me, are you freaked out? I say, I'm not freaked out. Am I concerned? Of course. Am I freaked out? No. And they always go, why not? Oh because I have a belief that Jesus Christ who died and rose again is going to come back and fix the world. Now most of the time when I say that answer in a normal human being when, when, being way, when I've prayed about someone for a long time that is usually not met with oh that's crazy. It's happened a few times. Most of the time people when I say that I have a trust that Jesus Christ is going to come back because they ask me why am I not freaked out about the election and normally they say to me I wish I had that hope. And then my next question in a normal human way would you like to know more about that hope? Sometimes they say yes sometimes they say no sometimes I feel them going oh I knew this pastor knew you know but in a number of cases they've said yes and now I'm on a Zoom call or I'm in a socially distant situation telling people about the hope I have in Jesus Christ. This is is the biggest problem facing every human being, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We, as believers in Jesus Christ, have been rescued from that condition. And now Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 is now true of us. And if that is reality, how can we not engage the gospel through massive amounts of prayer, and then having normal conversations and see what God does. So Ephesians 2, it's bad news in one sense, but it's true news. And if we truly understood this, we would be people who worshiped more. We would be people who have a, a better perspective, gospel perspective, on what the real problem in the universe is. And we would spend more time praying and engaging people who desperately need to be rescued from the same predicament that we once were in. What I'd like to do as we close is I would like to lead us in a time of confession for the ways in which we haven't always responded to Ephesians 2 the way we ought to. Offer a promise of pardon from Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. And then we'll get to apply the sermon at least in one way by worshiping God together, worshiping him for the fact that we were in Ephesians 2, trapped, hopeless, helpless. And now we've been put in a different position by the grace of God. Join me in a prayer of confession. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we admit that it's easy for us to forget who we once were Dead spiritually, the wrath of God upon us, controlled by the world, controlled by the evil one, controlled by our own flesh. We were helpless, hopeless, and now you have rescued us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now we have a completely new identity in Ephesians 1. Lord, I pray that when we see Ephesians 2 and then see that we, we're not there anymore by the grace of God, I pray that we would be people of worship. I pray that we would be people who in humility and worship can't stop praising God for who he is and what he's done for us. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for not having a gospel perspective, Lord. When we forget the amazing rescue that you accomplished by your grace, when we forget that the the greatest problem we, we, we all will ever face has been dealt with in Jesus, forgive us for the way we become indifferent to you when you don't answer our prayers or deliver us from our trials in the timing and the ways we want you to do. Forgive us for forgetting the amazing rescue that you have accomplished. Forgive us for not interpreting our present difficulties in light of the rescue you've already given to us in the light of that rescue effort which we will fully enjoy one day with Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for not loving our neighbors like we ought. We were rescued out of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 and I think, Lord, forgive us for our apathy toward those around us who are trapped just like we were. Forgive us for not getting on our knees and praying that you, the only one who can rescue our friends, family members, coworkers, etc., for failing to persistently and regularly calling out to you to do what only you can do. Forgive us for not engaging those around us. Talking, listening, And putting God on the agenda of those relationships. Forgive us for our timidity. Forgive us for our apathy. Forgive us for our lack of care and concern. Thank you, Lord, that you do forgive us. And that you give us the power to live out of the reality of the gospel. And learn to worship more consistently have a a better and deeper and broader perspective based on the gospel and that you would help us to engage others with the gospel. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.